Tonight we're going to consider Exodus 11 and 12, and um, I ask you to join me there. There's, there's really no way to, to go through this without reading a lot of it. And so, why don't we uh, pick up in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll just, uh, we'll just read for a little ways and then see what strikes us. We may have to go into chapter 12 as well and um, see what we, what we learn. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So there's a, a blessing from the Lord. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has ever been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall go down uh, to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. That would be another one to underline there. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So if you're noticing what's happening here, an action of Pharaoh is coming in direct confrontation with a promise of God. You see what's happened? See, God has promised after this happens, I will let you go out. And what, Moses, and what, what Pharaoh says here, or what it says in the, in the last verse, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh... And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We talked about the hardening of the hearts, the softening of the hearts, how the Bible speaks of these things. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. One other thing that we notice here is how to our modern ears, um, to our modern ears, how, I don't know, um, harsh this plague seems to be. After all, isn't God good and loving? How could He possibly make a decree that would, that would end people's lives? How could He do this? And of course, the reason this seems so unnatural to us is because we are, are tempted to think, in, and I think ways that, that aren't fully biblical. Because you think about what, who we are. We are rebels against God. We're, we're born this way, and God would have been totally justified in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned to cut off all human life forever. But instead, what He does is He allows us to live. He even allows us to have the opportunity to grow up and to come to know Him. How, how great a gift is this? These creatures that came from the dust that rebelled against God have the audacity to say, Lord, how could you do something unjust like this? Every breath that we take, 
is in a sense an injustice. It's a scandal that we are able to be alive in the presence of a holy God. But He allows us to live. He allows us even to come to know Him through the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He gave and who went and lived a perfect life and who died upon the cross for us. All of it is undeserved. We are not only undeserving people, we are ill-deserving. We don't just not deserve good things, we actually deserve bad things. But God gives us good things in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here, and that is why we sing. Let's read on in chapter 12 and see what things the Lord might teach us from the Passover chapter. Don't know how to do this other than reading, so I'm, I'm hoping that you all are just buckled in and ready to go because we're going through narrative. So in order to get the narrative, you have to read the narrative, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes Coram, you know, he loves books and reading. We don't do a lot of screens or anything like that, so books is all he knows, and he's just thrilled to have somebody read to him. And when it's late at night and it's already five minutes past his bedtime and he comes to you with a book and it's, it's a long one, right? <laughs> Why couldn't you have picked... Something other than Go Dog Go, right? That's, that's like 60 pages of Dr. Seuss rhymes. And then instead, uh, you know, why, why can't you just get me a short one? But chapter 11 is kind of short. Chapter 12 is a little more normal for the book of Exodus, but we're just going to have to read it. And let's see uh, what we uh, can receive from it. It says this, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you in the beginning of, uh, the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall uh, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. So take notice of these things, the characteristics of the lamb that's going to be for this sacrifice. What must it be? It must be a spotless lamb. Okay? wonder what this is pointing to. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at the twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two, the two doorposts and, <clears throat> and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. So, okay, not only is this sacrifice, not only does it need to be a spotless lamb, but it's actually going to provide a meal. People are going to be nourished from this sacrifice. It's interesting. wonder what that could point toward. Roasted on the fire, this is verse 8, about halfway through. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In other words, if you want to know why this is just, if you want to know why there's nothing wrong with what I'm about to do, here's why. I am the Lord. And that's all you need to know. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep a feast to the Lord. So now he goes through the, the feast of the unleavened bread. 
This is another memorial that the people of Israel are to keep. Um, I wonder if you could skip down to verse 21. Skip down to verse 21, chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood um, that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord had commanded as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Then, of course, you know what happens next. It occurs. This Passover, this horrible event, happens. I wonder, and this is where I'm about to, I'm about to betray a little bit of my ignorance. I'm trying to remember. When Jesus was on, I'm asking y'all a question now. This is me venturing into, I'm trying to remember something. When Jesus was uh, crucified on the cross and they, they lifted up to him the sponge, was it also on a hyssop branch? It was, wasn't it? That's something that would have been great for me to include in this lesson there in verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, right? They, they dipped a little bit of wine in the sponge and lifted it up on a, uh, on a hyssop branch when Jesus was on the cross. Interesting, interesting. The Word of God is deep, isn't it, friends? So why don't we look at our, why don't we look at our, um, at our paper here? In this scene, up at the top, in this scene, God gets glory for himself by saving his people through the judgment of Israel's enemies. You notice that? God gets glory for himself by saving his people through the judgment of Egypt. This sets up a theme that, that can be seen in the entire Bible. And I'm borrowing this. I've got a little footnote there so that, this is, so that nobody thinks I'm stealing it. God's glory in salvation through judgment. It's a theme that occurs in the Bible over and over and over again. And Jim Hamilton, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, has uh, basically walked through the entire Bible to show that at every moment in the Bible, this is the, the theme, right? This is the thread. But I'll give you a couple of them. Look here at the little, um, the little bullet points or the hash marks there. God gets his glory by saving Abraham... Through the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? Okay, there's an example of that. God gets his glory by saving Noah while judging the evil of the world, right? Noah gets saved because he's in the ark. Meanwhile, judgment is occurring. So God always gets glory by saving some while judging evil. Thirdly, God gets his glory by saving Isaac while judging the ram that was caught in the thicket. In other words... God's wrath has to be poured out somewhere, right? Because he's a just judge. He's not going to sweep anything under the rug. 
Sin must be punished, but there's always a means of salvation. God always provides a way for those who would believe, a way of salvation. Fourthly, God gets His glory by saving Israel while judging the armies of Egypt in the river, right? And the waters come crashing back over them. Israel gets out. They get saved. When they get saved, God gets glory. Why does God get glory? Because the people worship Him. They tell their kids. Their kids, their, their kids tell their kids. And all down through the generations, people believe on Yahweh and His power. But evil is judged. And then here we see, and this is only a sampling. Of course, Jim Hamilton has written a whole book on it. God gets His glory by saving Israel while judging the households of Egypt. Anyone who puts the blood over the doorpost can get saved. Right? Anyone who by faith trusts in God and expresses that trust by doing what God has said can be saved. So, here's the first thing that we notice, the first uh, point here, I suppose. God moves to save for the sake of His own glory. Why does God save? Is it because we're so special? I think that would be a pretty weak Bible. If That would be a pretty weak story if that were the point. If we are so special and so God needs to come down and get us on His team or something. No. God saves to give Himself glory. Right? Because He's the only one who's worthy of the glory. He's the one uh, toward whom all creation is turned and for whom it exists and by whom it exists, we, we learn in the epistles. Listen to, to where we learn this from. A couple of different scenes, and I've just pulled out a couple of course, I've been encouraging you to underline all the times that anything like this is, is said so that, uh, so that the point will be emphatically clear. Why does God do something? Well, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, that you may know who God is, that He has a people, that He's going to save His people. There's another one in chapters 11 and 12. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God always acts. He always moves to make His own glory magnified so that the worship of people would be directed away from the bad things, away from the idols, away from the things that aren't worth worship, and toward the only thing that is worth worship. That's why God moves in history. That's why God saves sinners. So that we could see that God is a powerful God and we would turn and give Him praise. So that the the, knowledge, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea so that God could get worship by creating worshipers. So these declarations follow in the long stream of God intending to show both His own people and the nations uh, so that they may know that He is the Lord. Look in chapter 9, verse 16. Here's an example. 9, 16 is an example of one of those. Um, let's look in verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God does it, yes, for His people, but also for all the nations so that everyone could turn and see that this Yahweh is the only one worth worship. And then 14.4, let's see what 14.4 is. Oh, when they're crossing the Red Sea, we haven't got here yet, but this is a good one. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why would he do such a thing? I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. 
and I will get glory. You see, like he's telegraphing this to his smoke signals. This isn't unclear, right? And I will get glory over Pharaoh, this man who leads Egypt and calls himself a god. I will get glory over him and his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, even the Egyptians who are worshiping their god king will turn or will, will, will be given the knowledge necessary to know who the real God is, right? God is the only one. Yahweh is the only one who is worthy of worship. And He moves in history and He moves in our hearts so that we can take our focus off of our small little kingdoms and our little idols and turn them to Him. And when we do that, we find that our lives suddenly make sense. Our lives suddenly make sense when we begin to worship the only thing that is worth worshiping. Anything else leads uh, not to, to a fulfilling life. He will show this by how he shows mercy to Israel and justice to Egypt. God is a God of mercy and justice. Where can we see this most fully? We see it on the cross. And we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's keep talking. A spotless lamb. If you notice in chapter 12, verse 5, we learn about this lamb. What must he be like? Well, he must be without blemish. Chapter 12, verse 5, a male, a year old. Okay, he must be without blemish. Look what else we learn. Then they shall take some of the blood. Okay, so not only do we have a sacrifice, but the blood is, is very important. wonder what that's setting us up to see. Where else in the Bible is blood very important, the shedding of blood? Well, a few times. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So, this lamb must be clean and his blood must be shed. The lamb must be clean and his blood must be shed. This sacrifice stands in a long line of blood sacrifices. All of these blood sacrifices in the Old Testament are pictures. They're like shadows giving us, they're telegraphing to us what to expect one day in a full measure when Christ comes. But look here. This is where we learn in, in Leviticus 17. Why is the blood so important? Well, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the blood is what, is what does the work in the economy of God. We don't understand all of His mind, but this is how He has ordained His world. It's how He has ordained His salvation plan to work. So, where do we see blood? Well, just a few scenes. If you notice, Adam and Eve, after the very first sin is committed, what does God do? He clothes them, not with the, the fig leaves that they tried to fix their problem with. He clothed them with what? The skins of an animal, right? What had to happen in order to get skins from an animal? Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. So we see it even in Genesis chapter 3. When the very first sin is committed, God is already telegraphing to us what His ultimate and full salvation one day will look like. We see the ram in the thicket, Isaac and Abraham up on top of the, up on top of the mountain, right? It wouldn't be the last time that the father told the son to carry some wood up the hill, right? And he does. Isaac carries the wood up the hill. They trust God. God provides, lo and behold, a substitute. Somebody else to take the punishment. Somebody else to be the sacrifice, namely the ram in the thicket. 
And what has to happen to the ram? Its blood has to be shed. And then now, when we look in the Passover, the Passover lamb, what has to happen above the doorpost and on the lintel? Blood has to be spread, right? Blood has to be shed. And then later, when the people of Israel have the temple and the tabernacle, right? We learn, we, we learn a very vivid description of this in Hebrews later in the New Testament, how every priest stands daily just administering what he has to do. He has to, he has to slay the lambs, but they can never take away the sin of the world. And that's why the priests stand daily. They keep doing this work. They keep sacrificing these lambs. They keep providing this, this partial atonement in the temple. And of course, blood is being shed all the while. But, a couple question marks there. What are all these things pointing to? They're pointing to something better. They're pointing to a shedding of blood. They're pointing to a substitute. They're pointing to a sacrifice that is true and better. And we'll get there, but let's keep talking. Passing over sins is what we learn in chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, God gives the people a way to avoid the judgment in His grace and in His mercy. All who demonstrate their faith in God by obeying Him will be passed over, right? The blood is once again the means of protection. Being covered by the blood averts death. It turns the wrath away. In chapter 12, verse 8, we notice something else about this sacrifice. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. So, not only is the blood to be spread across the doorpost, but a meal is to be shared from this sacrifice. Isn't this strange? wonder what this could be pointing to. A meal is shared from the body of the sacrifice. So there has to be the body and the blood. Part of the ritual involves being nourished by the lamb. In the same way, friends, we see Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. You see that? Look at this. He is, of course, spotless, just like the spotless lamb, but he's, he's sinless. His blood was shed for us on the cross in a substitutionary way. And the New Testament church is now instructed to meet regularly to do what? To eat of His flesh. Right? Just like the Passover meal, they were to be nourished by this sacrifice. We today meet regularly. and we're, We need to do one pretty soon. We need to have the Lord's Supper very soon to remember this event. Let me read to you from the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not seeing the picture. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. Now these, these, these Jewish folks, they should have gotten the picture, right? Because this is what their Passover ceremony was meant to point to. It was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. And they're not getting it. And friends, we wouldn't get it either unless the Lord opened the eyes of our hearts. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's from John chapter 6. So, here's the application. Those who place their faith in Jesus receive the benefits of His perfect blood, and they are also able to abide in Him for their entire lives by nourishing themselves on His body. We abide in Jesus by feasting on His finished work for us. It's not a literal eating of His body, drinking of His blood. It is instead a trusting in what His body and blood did. And when we gather to partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what He did, that He was the true and better Passover Lamb. And He accomplished it perfectly. Lastly, a neat little tidbit. Lastly for this section. And you shall not break any of its bones. I'm trying to remember where this is. Let's see. Because um, I'm not sure if I've read it. <clears throat> Anybody have eyes on that? Well, that's what I'm getting to. Yeah, 1932. But, but in Exodus, it says the same thing. And see, I've done it again. I've put the Scripture, but I didn't put the reference out next to it. It was talking about the sacrifice. Goodness gracious. Hmm. 46. Yep. Okay, if you look in chapter 12, verse 46, these are some more, uh, some more directions about the Passover. Let's pick it up in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute, a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant shall, uh, may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now, this is just another little interesting tidbit that we see brought up again, recapitulated in John 19.32, further proving that Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead... They did not break his legs. Just a small little fulfilled prophecy, if you will, about Jesus pointing to the fact, just dropping these hints for those who, who have ears to hear, that he is the true and better Passover lamb. There was one judgment. There was one death that could be avoided by putting the blood over the doorposts by hiding yourself under the blood 
of the Passover lamb. You could avoid one death. But today, for those who are hidden under the blood of Jesus, we can avoid death for eternity. The second death. Amen and amen. Here's the final salvation. The final salvation through judgment. While many might decry God's actions, the reality is He is entirely justified in all He does. He shows this supreme justice in how He saves us. Notice, the Passover lamb was a substitute. Jesus was a substitute. The Passover lamb provided nourishing. They, they ate a meal from it. Jesus today provides nourishing for all who abide in Him. The Passover lamb gave blood. The blood turned away the wrath of God. Today, Jesus offers blood to all who will believe. And that blood turns away the wrath of God. The Passover lamb provided, very much dovetailing with blood, the Passover lamb helped avoid judgment. Today, Jesus helps us avoid judgment. The Passover lamb was spotless. Jesus, we know, was never, uh, was without sin was tempted and tried in all ways, yet but, but was yet without sin. Wrath averted, faith expressed. How did, the, how did the Israelites express their faith? It wasn't the work that saved them. It was the faith that led them to do the work, right? They believed God, and because they believed God, they spread the blood over the doorpost. Today, all who believe God and place their faith in Jesus get wrath averted. I've only given you two blanks in this whole thing to fill out. So if you're one of those blank filler-outers, here's your chance. God gets His glory by saving us while judging His very own Son. You see that? We may want to say, God, Dean, this is not fair what you did. Friends, in a very real way, God subjected Himself to this. God sent His Son to bear the punishment. God, the Father, ordained that the Son should die for us. God gets His glory by saving us while judging His very own Son. So, God's glory in salvation through judgment, we see it at the cross. And we reap its benefits now. Praise be to Him. On that cross, Jesus died and the wrath of God was satisfied. All of the punishment for sin was poured out on Christ so that all who by faith receive Him might have new life. Sin will be judged, make no mistake. The only question is this. Will our sin be judged in our own bodies or will our sin's judgment be applied to the perfect Lamb? It will be poured out somewhere. And God in His grace and in His mercy has given us a way that the wrath that's coming toward us could be taken off of us and put on His Son. Let's pray. We're going to pray and then we'll respond uh, to the Word of God. God, thank You that You give us everything that we need in Christ. That we see these pictures. We, should, we ought to know what to expect. Lord, we have dim eyes and, and we have... Uh, hard and, and wayward hearts many times, but Lord, You give us pictures and you, you tell us what to expect. And we see now, we reap the benefits of living on this side of the Bible, on this side of the cross, and we get to look back and, and see everything. Uh, it is now in the New Testament revealed what was in the Old Testament concealed. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would look on this beautiful story of how the Passover shows a God who is full of justice, but who is also full of mercy for those who would express faith toward Him. And now we see that in a full, in a full measure at the cross. That yes, Lord, You are a just judge. You can't simply sweep sin under the rug, but You have provided a way out through Your Son. Lord, I pray that we would give You glory and praise because of it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.